Well, good morning. Excited to be with you all. Excited to open up the Word of God with you all. Our sermon text today is from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Again, that's 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. If you're looking on in your bulletin, it's on page 8. If you're using the Bible uh, in the pew there, it's on page 1016. I'll just give you a second to find it. I'll, I'll give a, a, a broad uh, view of the context that we're going to be sitting in for this passage. We're in the very early Christian church. There is a lot of active persecution going on. We heard about it in our scripture reading from chapter 3. Uh, if you kept reading beyond our passage today, you would find out more about what it means to suffer as a Christian. Peter is addressing largely converted Gentiles who are detestable to the, Christ, or to the Roman Empire. Uh, they are being mocked. They are being uh, made to suffer in various ways. Uh, their possessions and, and those sorts of things, uh, they shouldn't hold on to too tightly. Uh, it's, it's gotten pretty bad for them. And this is a cyclical letter. That means that it's going round and round to all of these various areas that are in the dispersed part of the early church not just in Jerusalem, but far out, 300,000 square miles approximately. And this letter is going to go around and around. And it's got to have some sticking power. It's got to sit on doctrine. It's got to sit on good teaching. But it also has to tell that church how to take that doctrine and apply it to life. So let's read this passage together, and then we'll pray. Beginning in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father God, we know that this Word is Yours. We ask that by Your Spirit's power, You would apply it rightly uh, to our hearts, that we would see and exalt Christ for what He has done, that You would remind us that when fears come upon us, when suffering comes upon us, that you have made us for yourself and that you are coming again to rescue us. You have called us to press on and to proclaim your gospel, and we pray that this word would encourage us to do that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Paul, Paul, excuse me, Peter, we'll get to Paul. Peter frames his letter to these churches in a way that Uh, amidst persecution, he wants them to be encouraged. And not only does he want them to be encouraged, but he wants them to encourage and to serve each other in light of the grace that they've received. When persecution is all around, when suffering is at your door constantly, when it's easier to give in or to give up, how exactly should the church move ahead? And so to answer that question, Peter is going to do two things. He's going to bring practical wisdom that that works itself out in the day-to-day life of believers. And he's he's doing that firstly by orienting their hearts to the realities of their situation. 
And so we're going to talk about that sort of heart orientation thing first. We're going to call it the church's perspective. That's point number one, the church's perspective. And then, well, how do you live that reality out? We're going to call that point number two, the church's persistence. So we have perspective and persistence. Beginning again in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. I thought about this text a lot. And every time I read uh, those first few words, the end of all things is at hand, I just love it so much. If you want to, maybe just like sort of a science experiment, you could go to your neighbor or a classmate, coworker, uh, maybe a stranger at Costco, and you could just come alongside of them and say, the end of all things yet. And, you know, Kelsey has forbidden me from doing this. Uh, You know, maybe if you yelled it out or something, you might actually get arrested. But the end of all things is at hand. Peter is waking the people up to the reality of their situation. And this sort of startling statement brings up an interesting question. What does a worldly response to the end of all things look like? Well, in a, in a sort of a big picture way, we could think about it inducing a lot of fear in people. You know, just a few years ago, two or three, there was a pandemic that swept across the country and the globe, and it caused a lot of fear in people. Uh, But even before this pandemic, there were movies and shows, a common culture that is dedicated to talking about the end of the world. There are big blockbuster movies that deal with these cataclysmic events and shows about prepping in in case bad things come upon you. And these things are, in some sense, intriguing for us because we resonate with the fear that is there. As much as we claim Christ, we still have some of this fear. And I think Peter is dialing in on a, a sort of a second level of fear, an inner fear. That's probably more at the center of his argument. If we follow the logic of Peter's first imperative to be self-controlled and to be sober-minded, then we start to see that this looming end does something to our hearts, to our desires, to our ambitions, to the things we want to do, to the things that we want to see. And we all live like this to one degree or another. Some of us actually have bucket lists. Maybe we made them when we were uh, in our 20s or 30s or when we hit 40, not too far away. Uh, And and we start to write down the things that we want to see and experience, those thrills that we want to have before we die. Though not exclusively, those things can be pointed often toward us for what I want, what I want to see, what I want to do, what I, what I need. And it's a way that we attempt to deal with the fear of the impending end. We dream of things we want to do one day, but those dreams speak to our desires and longings in a really particular way. Now, desires and longings for experiences are not inherently bad, so we need to continue to keep them in Peter's context. As his hearers are hearing these words, those experiences were far and away pagan practices that they used to engage in regularly. So Peter is saying, he's admonishing them, the end of all things is at hand. Don't engage every lustful muscle of your heart 
or every lustful muscle of your eye. Don't give yourself over to every impurity. Peter actually reasons in the other direction, across the grain. He says, if, if suffering comes upon you, and if you kept reading verses 12 to 19, you're going to see a lot of that. If, if persecution comes upon you, even martyrdom, if those things are awaiting you tomorrow, focus on habits of grace, on disciplining your mind and your body. But we scratch our heads. Why, why is Peter able to say this? How is he able to uh, impel these hearers to do this sort of discipline on mind and body in face of the fears that could be facing them? Well, he has a particular understanding of the end. He's not just referring to these believers' various times of earthly departure. Remember, this letter's got to have long sticking power. It's going to hold in the church for generations. Rather, he's probably thinking on Jesus' words from his earthly ministry. Something along the lines of John 14, 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. We have sort of an echo in Peter's ears of the Schwarzeneggerian. I will be back. I'll be back. I don't want to mess it up in California. Um, Peter is admonishing these believers, don't give give up or give in. Stay self-controlled and sober-minded. Endure for a little while longer because Christ has promised he's going to return. He's going to take you to where he is. Your engagement with your heavenly king is far greater, far more rewarding, and appropriate to who you are now. You're not those Gentile uh, pagans any longer. You are a chosen people in Christ. It's language that is from the rest of the epistle. Don't retreat or surrender. For the sake of keeping your hearts aligned to God through prayer, you're going to have greater fortitude. You're going to have greater peace. You're going to have greater perspective. You're praying to the God who holds your days in his hands. So Peter has addressed, in one sense, the most critical relationship in these believers' lives, the vertical relationship. Rightly oriented believers keep their bodies, keep their minds stayed on Christ. But there's an important sort of turn as we move into verses 8 through 11. They don't do those things in isolation. They don't live in isolation. Peter widens out his perspective to the whole church now in a series of instructions that are directed toward the one another's. That is the church. Now these instructions answer the question, how should the church press on together into the future? And so we've talked about point number one, the church's perspective, and now we move on to the church's persistence. This isn't a one-soldier battle. God didn't intend for his church to persist merely as individuals. And so Peter's going to bring these practical exhortations to the believers in the dispersion that helps them link arms on the battlefield. And so we start with verse number 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Peter is returning to a theme that he's hit upon throughout this letter. And it's one where he's admonishing these believers to express the love toward each other that they've already received in Christ. But we're sort of shaken with this covering a multitude of sins. What does that even mean? 
We can't say that believers atone for one another. They don't pay for the sins of another person. Only God justifies us in Christ. I think Peter here is talking about a pruning type of love. These verses are are so close to sort of the pressured situation of of verse 7. And then he follows this with an above all. They draw out the fact that loving one another in light of what's going on in this vast dispersion is difficult. The pressures to return to an easier way of life are immense. If not loving your neighbor, if it saves you from being harassed, why not you know, just avoid it altogether? If you can avoid uh, helping out a brother or sister and it keeps you from being beaten in the street, or from all of your goods being taken away from you? How easy would it be to deny that you love your brother on your right and your sister on the left? But that's sin. And Peter, in addressing the the wider context of believers, is describing a love that prunes with complacency and waywardness or, or turning back to an old way of life as the backdrop, Peter uses love in this active sense to propel believers to pull one another back from turning to the pagan culture around them, from ceding all belief in Christ and bowing before the Roman Empire. Peter goes on from this loving one another to another practical exhortation in verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As I, as I thought about this, uh, it seems like a really big ask of Peter to, to tell these early Christians to show hospitality without grumbling. If I've walked or ridden uh, with my family and the things that I own for hundreds of miles, and I've landed somewhere, and when I get there, I see that the stinking arm of the Roman Empire is still right next door. And they hear that I'm a Christian. They heard me saying the name of Jesus, this dead man. Uh, they, they come and they plunder most of the things that I have. And now you're telling me and my grieving wife and my kids to host other people, to show them hospitality without grumbling? I'm already mad about the, that I had to move in the first place. How am I supposed to bend to these people and what they need and what they want? Christian and and secular historians describe this harshness, uh, particularly Pliny, uh, the elder to Trajan. This is a little further into the early 2nd century. uh, Talking about Christians in modern, modern Turkey, he says, Christians were interrogated as to whether they were Christians. Those who confessed, I interrogated a second and a third time, threatening them with punishment. Those who persisted, I ordered executed. For I had no doubt that whatever the nature of their creed, stubbornness and inflexible obstinacy surely deserve to be punished. For confessing the name of Jesus Christ and holding on to that confession, you would die. How in the face of this are they supposed to show each other hospitality? Well, I think the commandment or the instruction still stands, but I think it helps us to know that we need to reframe our understanding of what Peter is actually asking for. We need to reframe hospitality. Because in America, 
We think it's a four-bedroom, two-bathroom house with nice decor and a well-appointed table and perfectly washed children that helps us to host well, right? That's the hospitality we're talking about. A few years ago, Kelsey and I were invited over to a a couple's home. They lived in like a 125-year-old farmhouse. And maybe you have the wrong impression. It was 125 years old, and it was the old part, not like romantic, nice. This guy's a contractor. He's in the midst of cleaning up this house, of, of doing some remodeling. And when we're invited in, there is construction debris and sheetrock and insulation everywhere. There are cats roaming, you know, sort of everywhere. And uh, there are children. There's not enough seating for everyone. Adults sat on the floor. And I can tell you that it was one of the greatest nights of hospitality in my life. The essentials that we think are essentials are not essentials whatsoever. It is an invitation into the life of another believer. No matter your age, if if you're married, if you're single, if you're widowed, if you're in school, please know that you have brothers and sisters who need you. And they need your encouragement. They need your presence. They need your listening ear. And sometimes those things happen around a table or a cup of coffee, but those things aren't the requirement. Those things are just extras. Because we didn't hear Peter say, clean up and then become hospitable. He said, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. They had nothing. They had nothing. Whatever they had on their back or their cart or their donkey, that's what they had. And they're told to bring each other in because they need each other. And Peter goes on in, in verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. We're going to slow down just for a second. Focus on these first few words, as each has received a gift. There's another conception that we have in the sort of American church in the West, that there are only a few gifted people in the church. I would be one of them because I'm standing behind this pulpit. My wife would tell you, I'm not all that gifted. She, She would... She would press against that a little bit. But there is an understanding that the people who are up front, the musicians, the pastors, the teachers, the writers, they've got the gifts. And the rest of you, I guess, just show up and receive from us. But that's not what Peter has said. Peter has said, as each has received a gift. Some here pray, and they love to pray, and they've been praying for 10 years or 20 years or 30 years or 40 years, and they have a prayer journal. And they have people that they write down their names and they keep track of and and they watch God's faithfulness come through their prayers. There are some people who love to do maintenance here. They love to get their hands dirty. There are some who love to, to program and engineer and they do things that I don't like to do, I don't want to do. Um, I could grow at a few of these things, but the point is that we're not all gifted the same way. Some are encouragers. Some love to smell babies. And they love other people's babies. And there are things that I might not be gifted at. But the central point is that there is no elevation of one gift over another. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Not to be elevated. Not to serve yourself. God gives all these gifts and then tells us that we need them in each other. He talks about this in in, uh, different ways in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 as 
Paul describes the many parts of Christ's body, the church. The central point is that these gifts are not given for us. And there are many gifts that don't always show their face, but those people still have gifts. We need to recognize them, encourage them, and be served by them. Again, especially in Peter's day, we can imagine these refugees often scattered and scared. And I need this guy over here, whatever he's got. If he's good at fixing my cart, I need him more than I need somebody who can probably read to me at that point. In your English translations between uh, verses 10 and 11, there's typically a colon there. So we use verse 11 to kind of think about that explaining verse 10. It says, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So if these are two sort of big gift categories that Peter is thinking in, we want to think about them as descriptive, not proscriptive. There aren't just speakers and there aren't just servers. There's all sorts of different aspects, facets of what serving and speaking look like. But Peter is dialing in on this particular part, uh, the source of those things, the source of speaking, the source of serving. They are from God and they are for God. Now he's probably thinking about the gathering of the church here. That is, these are the words, the oracles of God. But it is important to remember, again, in the context of sort of the the dispersion perspective, these elect exiles, as they're scattered all over, when they're doing these things, when they're speaking and when they're serving, it's by God and for God. And that the gathering of the early church, especially in its historical context, it's not inside a nicely ordered building like GBC with a new sign. The bigger impetus is that when we're speaking and when we're serving as spirit-indwelt believers, those things come from God and they go back to God as we see them expressed in the gifts of the church. And so we can tease this out a little bit further. When When we're speaking the truth of God's word here or elsewhere, if we're on a park bench with a coworker or we're having a neighbor over for dinner, when we're speaking... Those words, those are God's words. When we're speaking a word of edification, we're bringing a verse or a devotional that we've meditated on. That's not your wisdom. You didn't come up with that. God gave you his word, and you use that word to serve one another. And it came from him. It's from God. It's for God. We're not going to cut out God. We're not going to make it about us. Verse 11 goes on, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter waits until the end of our passage, and in the midst of sort of a benediction, to give this purpose. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. And he's referencing this, uh, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. If you're like me and you're listening to a sermon and the, the preacher gets to the last verse, you get really excited and you start to shut your Bible kind of halfway. I'm going to beg you to hang on for just a second. We're going to stop here and consider the present implications that surround a passage like this and its historical context. 
We're not intending to, but sometimes we implicitly shrug a passage like this off of our shoulders like it doesn't matter. Why? Well, because most of us are not being dragged out into the street. Most of us aren't being harassed for our Christ-imitating behavior. Peter first wakes these believers up. He wants to orient them to the right behavior and to their right relationship with God, sober-minded, self-controlled, for the sake of your prayers. But we're left with a big question mark that sort of hovers over this whole passage. The end of all things that, that, that Peter envisioned, Christ's return, it didn't happen. It's like a fizzled out firecracker. A, a people are awaiting their returning king, and he doesn't show up. And so we might be like Peter's hearers. We're sometimes holding our hands up, the ever-popular shoulder shrug emoji. What are we supposed to do with the fact that Jesus didn't return? At least not in the lifetime of these dispersed Christians. What are we supposed to do with that fact in our lives? Do these instructions then become hollow? Should I live my life sacrificially if the end of all things isn't really at hand? Should I pursue my own pleasures if Jesus isn't coming back? Why should I waste my time being hospitable or using my gifts for others? Can't I just show up to church every once in a while and go about my life without all these extra instructions? Think about Peter's perspective for a moment as he delivers these words. The book of Luke recounts Peter's calling in chapter 5. He's called from his fishing lifestyle. He's a fisherman, and he becomes one of the inner circle disciples. Out of the 12, he's, he's there in the sort of the core three with James and John. We sort of elevate these apostles in our mind, but they are portrayed as very sinful and very broken for a particular reason because they are far more like us than not. Peter is called from his life while he's doing his thing. He's probably got an internal bucket list too. He's got hopes and dreams and desires of his own. And Scripture testifies to a dramatic personality. Jesus sees him, Jesus calls him, and so he starts following this no-name rabbi from a no-name town around. And then the kingdom of God, through our Lord Jesus, starts showing up in miracles, in teaching, in feeding, in confounding the wise. Perhaps Peter's internal bucket list changes. He starts to put all of his hopes upon Jesus and they just grow and they grow and he loves his perfect teaching and his love and his zeal. Peter has hopes and dreams and yearnings for relief and for this kingdom to start. Perhaps he's even thinking about his place in the kingdom. He's so certain of Jesus' earthly coming kingdom that he's callously hard to Jesus when Jesus announced that his own death was in sight that his time for crucifixion was drawing near. Peter denies him. He says, far be it from you, Lord, that this thing should happen. And yet it was Jesus' willing sacrificial obedience that brought him to the cross. And there, at the cross, the hopes of so many who had been healed, who had been taught, who had been confronted, who had been loved, maybe even shared a meal with our Lord, all of those hopes ended. 
Jesus died on a cross, and that was the end of all things. This horrific injustice, this tragedy of tragedies. One time in all of human history, a perfect man dies, a sinless man, a man righteous under the law. He dies by humiliating crucifixion. Crushed for our iniquities, the wrath of God was poured out upon him. And all of Peter's hopes come rushing out with the greatest gut punch in history. Jesus Christ, the the promised one, the Messiah, the Lion of Judah, he cries out, it is finished. And I'm sure Peter, Peter thought, this is the end of all things. Everything I hope for. Maybe it's even more severe for Peter. Scripture testifies to him denying Jesus three times before he's at his cross. But here our passage finds its wonderful and its personal context. As they take Jesus' body from the cross and place him in the tomb, what's Peter thinking? He gave his life to a king and a kingdom for a few good years, and what's he gotten for a reward? A crucified leader and all of his shame. What's all this for? All of my believing, all of my hoping, all of my behaving. And maybe you're skeptical too today. Sorrowful, confused. You sound just like Peter. We sound just like Peter. Wondering what's going to happen when the end of all things comes. And maybe Peter moved wholeheartedly toward his desires the day after Christ was crucified. The heck with the rest of you? Can't I just live life for me? If it all ends in death, what's the point in serving anyone else? Peter is dialing in on the heart condition of these dispersed Christians. He's combating fear and sin simultaneously. Yet his own questions as Jesus was crucified, they didn't have to wait long for an answer. In fact, Peter's frustration and sadness, his longings and fears, his crushed hopes and dreams, they were raised far beyond what he possibly thought possible. Strangely, miraculously, graciously, powerfully, what Peter thought was the end of the king and his kingdom was really its cornerstone being laid down. The cross that was foolish and weak and vile and filled with hate was the greatest place of wisdom and strength and love. The cross of Christ was no end at all. On the third day, Jesus rose to life, and now we have no end as we put our faith in Him. It is the place by faith of our spiritual birth. And so Peter, as he delivers these words to these dispersed Christians who wanted to give up, wanted to go back to their old ways of living, to serving themselves and loving themselves and using their stuff for themselves, he says, Jesus will return. I thought the end was here too. But then Christ rose again. And seeing our Lord rise, And our Lord ascended. It has crushed every doubt, every fear, every bit of my suffering. All of these things are no longer in vain. So hear me, brother and sister. The end of all things is truly near. And we hope for and we long for Jesus' return. But we do so because of Jesus' death and resurrection. Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians 15, 14. 
Your faith is in vain if Jesus is not resurrected. And our greatest hope is there. For if there is no cross, if there is no resurrection, then we're still in our sins. We don't have any spirit. We don't have an eternal home. We don't have a church and so on. And the return of the Lord would be a great day of fear rather than a great day of hope and consolation. Peter's perspective becomes the church's perspective. It becomes the key to the church's persistence in the face of the end. So he says, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. And wouldn't you agree that the God who in Christ Jesus was self-controlled and sober-minded as he faced his own end, whose love covered our sins perfectly, who welcomed us into his perfect life, who gave us himself as the greatest gift, who came to serve and not to be served, this Savior, our Lord, is risen and reigning with God, and to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we await the return of your Son. We await the new heavens and the new earth. And as we wait, we pray that we would see with eyes of faith as Peter has called us to. Not to give up, not to give in, not to uh, be in the world, or to be of the world, but uh, Father, we know that we're in it. We ask that you would help us to do these things that you've asked of us. To show hospitality, to love one another, to serve one another. And we do these things because we were loved and we were served and we were invited into life eternal, life abundant by Christ first. Father, help us to press on today by your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.